Caballo led us over to the tiny house where he and I had eaten the day we met. We all squeezed into Mama's living room as her daughter jammed two tables together. Luis and his dad ducked across the street and returned with two big bags of beer. Jen and Billy took a few sips of Tecate and began to perk up. We all raised our beers and clinked cans with Caballo. Then he turned to me and got down to business. Suddenly, the oath on the bridge made sense. You remember Manuel Luna's son? Marcelino? Of course I remembered the human torch. I'd been mentally signing Nike contracts on his behalf ever since I'd seen him at the Taruamara school. Is he coming? No, Caballo said. He's dead. Someone beat him to death. They murdered him out on the trail. He was stabbed in the neck and under the arm, and his head was bashed in. Who? What happened? I stammered. There's all kind of drug shit going on these days, Caballo said. Maybe Marcelino saw something he wasn't supposed to see. Maybe they were trying to get him to carry weed out of the canyon, and he said no. No one really knows. Manuel is just heartbroken, man. He stayed over at my house when he came to tell the Federales. But they're not going to do anything. There's no law down here. I sat, stunned. I remembered the drug runners and the shiny red deathmobile we'd seen on the way to the Taruamara school the year before. I pictured stealthy Taruamara tipping it over the edge of a cliff at night, the drug runners clawing frantically at their seatbelts, the truck bouncing down the canyon and exploding in a giant fireball. I had no idea if the men in the deathmobile had been involved. All I knew was I wanted to kill somebody. Caballo was still talking. He had already absorbed Marcelino's death and was back to obsessing over his race. I know Manuel Luna won't come, but I'm hoping Arnulfo will show up, and maybe Silvino. Over the winter, Caballo managed to put together a nice pot of prizes. Not only was he kicking in his own money, but he'd also been contacted out of the blue by Michael French, a Texas triathlete who'd made a fortune from his IT company. French was intrigued by my Runner's World article and while he couldn't make it to the race himself, he offered to put up cash and corn for the top finishers. Excuse me, I said. Did you say Arnulfo is coming? Yeah, Caballo nodded. He had to be joking. Arnulfo? He wouldn't even talk to me, let alone join me for a run. If he wouldn't go for a jog with a guy who'd come to pay homage right at his doorstep, why would he travel across the mountains to run with a pack of gringos he'd never seen before? And Silvino. I'd met Silvino the last time I was down here. We'd run into him by chance in Creel, right after I'd gone running with Caballo. He was in his pickup and wearing his jeans, the spoils from the marathon he'd won in California. Where did Caballo get the idea that Silvino would bother coming to his race? Silvino couldn't even be induced to run another marathon for the chance of another big payday. I'd learned enough about the Taruumara, and those two runners in particular, to know there was no way the Kimare clan had any intention of turning up. Victorian athletics were fascinating. Oblivious to the fact that it suddenly seemed very unlikely that any Taruumara runners were going to appear, Ted was prattling on. That was the first English Channel crossing. Have you ever ridden a high-wheel bike? The engineering is so ingenious. God, 
What a disaster. Caballo was rubbing his head. It was pushing midnight, and just being around humans was giving him a headache. Jen and Billy had a platoon of dead Tecate cans in front of them and were falling asleep on the table. I was miserable, and I could tell Eric and Luis were picking up on the tension and getting concerned. But not Scott. He just sat back, amused. He caught everything and seemed worried by nothing. Look, I gotta sleep, Caballo said. He led us over to a collection of neat ancient cabins on the edge of town. The rooms were sparse as cells, but spotlessly clean and toasty from pot-bellied stoves crackling with pine branches. Caballo mumbled something and disappeared. The rest of us divided up into pairs. Eric and I grabbed one room, Jen and Billy headed to another. All right, Ted said, clapping his hands. Who gets me? Silence. Okay, Scott said, but you've got to let me sleep. We shut our doors and sank into deep piles of wool blankets. Silence fell over Creel, until the last thing Scott heard was Barefoot Ted's voice in the dark. Okay, brain, Ted muttered. Relax. Time to quiet down. Chapter 24 Tap, tap, tappity-tap. Dawn broke with frost on the window and a rapping at our door. Hey, a voice outside whispered. You guys up? I padded over to the door, shivering, wondering what the hell the party kids had done this time. Luis and Scott were outside, blowing into their cupped hands. It was so early, the sky was still a milky coffee color. The roosters hadn't even started crowing. Want to sneak in a run? Scott asked. Caballo said we're on the road by eight, so we've got to hit it now. Uh, yeah, okay, I said. Caballo took me on a great trail last time. Let me see if I can find him, and... A window flew open in the cabin beside us. Jen's head popped out. You guys going for a run? I'm in. Billy, she called back over her shoulder. Get your ass up, dude. I yanked on some shorts and a polypro top. Eric yawned and reached for running shoes. Man, these guys are hardcore, he said. Where's Caballo? No idea. I'm going to look for him. I walked to the end of the row of adjoining cabins, guessing Caballo would be as far from us as he could get. I rapped on the door of the very last cabin. Nothing. It was a pretty stout door, though, so just to be sure, I gave it a good hammering with the side of my fist. What? a voice roared. The curtains ripped open and Caballo's face appeared. His eyes were red and puffy. Sorry, I said. You catch a cold or something? No, man, he said wearily. I was just getting to sleep. Barely twelve hours into this operation, Caballo was already so stressed that he'd spent the entire night tossing and turning with an anxiety headache. Being in Creel was enough to put him on edge in the first place. It's actually a pleasant little town, but it represents the two things Caballo despises most. Bullshit and bullies. It's named for Enrique Creel, a land-raping kingpin of such dastardly magnificence that the Mexican Revolution was essentially thrown in his honor. Enrique not only engineered the land grab that ousted thousands of Chihuahua peasants from their farms, but personally made sure that any feisty farmers ended up in jail by moonlighting as the head of a spy network 
for the Mexican dictator Porfirio Diaz. Enrique slithered into exile in El Paso when Pancho Villa's rebels came thundering after him, leaving behind a son who had to be ransomed from the revolutionaries for a million dollars. But once Mexico went through its inevitable correction and reverted back to contented corruption, Enrique returned in all his scheming glory. In a fitting tribute to the region's greatest human virus, Enrique Creel's namesake was now the launching area for every pestilence afflicting the Copper Canyons, strip mining, clear-cut logging, drug ranching, and big bus tourism. Spending time there drove Caballo nuts. For him, it was like staying at a bed and breakfast on a working slave plantation. Most of all, though, he wasn't used to being responsible for anyone besides the guy inside his own sandals. Now that he'd had a look at us, his chest was squeezing tight with apprehension. He'd spent ten years building up the trust of the Tarahumara, and it could come crashing down in ten minutes. Caballo envisioned barefoot Ted and Jen yapping into the ears of the uncomprehending Tarahumara, Luis and his dad flashing cameras in their eyes, Eric and me pestering them with questions. What a nightmare. No, man, I ain't going for a run, he groaned. He snapped the curtains shut. Soon the seven of us, Scott, Luis, Eric, Jen, Billy, Barefoot Ted, and I, were on the pine-needle trail that Caballo had taken me on before. We came out of the tree canopy just as the sun was breaking over the giant standing stones, making us squint as the world turned to gold. Mist and glittering droplets swirled around us. Gorgeous, Luis said. I've never seen a place like this, Billy said. Caballo's got the right idea. I'd love to live here, just living cheap and running trails. He's brainwashed you already, Luis hooted. The cult of the white horse. It's not him, Billy protested. It's this place. My little pony, Jen smirked. You kind of look like Caballo. In the midst of this banter, Scott was busy watching Barefoot Ted. The trail was snaking through a rock field, but even though we had to hop from boulder to boulder, Ted wasn't slowing down a bit. Dude, what are those things on your feet? Jen asked. Vibram Five Fingers, Ted said. Aren't they great? I'm their first sponsored athlete. Yes, it was true. Ted had become America's first professional barefoot runner of the modern era. Five fingers were designed as a deck shoe for yacht racers. The idea was to give better grip on slippery surfaces while maintaining the feeling of shoelessness. You had to look closely just to spot them. They conformed so perfectly around his soles and each toe, it looked as if Ted had dipped the bottoms of his feet in greenish ink. Shortly before the Copper Canyon trip, he'd come across a photo of the five fingers on the web and immediately grabbed the phone. Somehow, he connived his way through the thicket of switchboard operators and secretaries and got on the line with the CEO of Vibram USA, who turned out to be none other than Tony Post, the one-time Rockport exec who'd sponsored the Tarahumara at Leadville. Tony heard Ted out but was extremely doubtful. Not that he didn't love the idea of relying on foot strength instead of super cushioning and motion control. Once... Tony even ran the Boston Marathon in a pair of Rockport dress shoes to demonstrate that comfort and good construction were all you needed, not all that shocks anti-pronation gel support jazz. 
but at least Rockport dress shoes had arches and a cushioned sole. The five fingers were nothing but a sliver of rubber with a Velcro strap. Still, Tony was intrigued and decided to try it out for himself. I went for an easy little one-mile jog, he says. I ended up doing seven. I never thought of the five finger as a running shoe, but after that, I never thought of anything else as a running shoe. When he got home, he wrote a check to cover Barefoot Ted's trip to the Boston Marathon. We'd run six miles along the mesa top and were heading back into Creel when, in the distance, a thin black shadow broke from the trees and started moving toward us. Is that Caballo? Scott asked. Jen and Billy peered, then shot toward him like hounds off the leash. Barefoot Ted and Luis went after them. Scott stayed with us, but his racehorse instincts were making him itchy. He glanced apologetically at Eric and me. You mind if I... he asked. No problem, I said. Run him down. Cool. By the time the ool was out of his mouth, he was a good half-dozen yards away, his hair bouncing like streamers on a kid's handlebars. Shit, I muttered. Watching Scott surge off suddenly reminded me of Marcelino. Scott would have gotten such a kick out of that kid. Jen and Billy, too. They would have loved mixing it up with their teenage Tarahumara triplet. I could even imagine what Manuel Luna was feeling. No, that wasn't true. I was just trying hard not to. Evil had followed the Tarahumara here, to the bottom of the earth where there was no place left to run. Even while mourning his magnificent son, Manuel had to be wondering which of his children would be next. You need a break? Eric asked. How are you doing? No, I'm good. Something on my mind. Caballo was approaching. After meeting the others, he kept on running toward Eric and me while the others took a breather and posed for Luis's camera. It was a good thing Caballo had changed his mind and decided to come for a run. For the first time since we'd gotten off the bus, he was smiling. The sparkling sunrise and the old familiar pleasure of feeling his body warm from the inside out seemed to have eased his anxiety. And man, was it great to see him in action again. Just watching him, I felt my back straightening and my feet quickening, as if someone had just switched on the Chariots of Fire soundtrack. Apparently, the admiration was sort of mutual. Look at you, Caballo shouted. You're a whole new bear. A while back, Caballo had decided on a spirit animal for me. While he was a sleek white horse, I was Oso, the lumbering bear. But at least he took the sting out of it with his reaction to the way I looked now, a year since I'd gasped and winced pathetically behind him. You're nothing like the guy I had up here before, Caballo said. Thanks to the man here, I said, jerking my thumb toward Eric. Nine months of Eric's Tarahumara-style training had worked wonders. I was 25 pounds lighter and running with ease on a trail that had killed me before. Despite all the miles I'd put in, up to 80 a week, I still felt light and loose and eager for more. Most of all, for the first time in a decade, I wasn't nursing some kind of injury. This guy is a miracle worker. Must be, Caballo grinned. I saw what he had to work with. So, what's the secret? It's a pretty wild story, I began. But by then we'd reached Scott and the others, who were listening to Barefoot Ted hold court. Tell you later, I promised Caballo. 
Barefoot Ted had slipped off his five fingers and was demonstrating the perfect shoeless foot strike. Barefoot running really appealed to my artistic eye, Ted was saying. This concept of bricolage, that less is more, the best solution is the most elegant. Why add something if you're born with everything you need? You better add something to your feet when we cross the canyons, Caballo said. You brought some other shoes, right? Sure, Ted said. I've got my flip-flops. Caballo smiled, waiting for Barefoot Ted to smile back and show he was joking. Barefoot Ted didn't and wasn't. You don't have shoes, Caballo said. You're going into the barrancas in flip-flops? Don't worry about me. I hiked the San Gabriels in bare feet. People kept looking at me like, is this guy out of his mind? And I'd say, these ain't no San Gabriel mountains, Caballo spat, mocking the California range with all the gringo butchery he could muster. The cactus thorns out here are razor blades. You get one in your foot, we're all fucked. Those trails are dangerous enough without carrying you on our backs. Whoa, whoa, you guys, Scott said, getting a shoulder in and pushing them both back a step. Caballo, Ted's probably been hearing, Ted, go put some shoes on for years. But if he knows what he's doing, he knows what he's doing. He don't know shit about the barrancas. I know this, Ted shot back. If someone gets in trouble out there, I guarantee you it won't be me. Yeah? Caballo snarled. We'll see, amigo. He turned and stalked down the trail. Oh, mama, Jen said. Who's the troublemaker now, Ted? We followed Caballo toward the cabins, while barefoot Ted loudly and persistently continued arguing his case to us, Caballo's back, and the awakening town of Creel. I glanced at my watch. I was tempted to tell Barefoot Ted to just shut up and buy a cheap pair of sneaks to keep Caballo happy, but there wasn't time. Only one bus a day made the ten-hour trip down into the canyons, and it would be pulling out before any shops opened. Back at the cabins, we began jamming clothes into our backpacks. I told the others where they could scare up some breakfast, then I went to check Caballo's cabin. He wasn't there. Neither was his pack. Maybe he's cooling off on his own. I told myself. Maybe. But I had a sick feeling that he decided to hell with us and was gone for good. After a long night of worrying whether he'd made a colossal mistake, I was pretty sure he'd gotten his answer. I decided not to tell anyone and hope for the best. One way or the other, we'd know in about thirty minutes if this operation was dead or hanging on life support. I shouldered my pack and walked back across the footbridge over the sewage ditch where we'd taken our oath the night before. I found the rest of the crew in a little restaurant down the block from the bus stop, loading up on bean and chicken burritos. I wolfed down two, then packed a few in my pack for later. When we got to the bus, it had already rumbled to life and was ready to go. The driver was tossing the last bags onto the roof rack and signaled for ours. Espera, I said. Hang on a sec. Caballo wasn't anywhere in sight. I shoved my head inside the bus and scanned the full rows of seats. No Caballo. Damn. I got out to break the news to everyone else, but they'd all disappeared. I walked around the back, 
and found Scott climbing the rungs to the roof. Come on up, Bolso! Caballo was on top of the bus, catching bags for the driver. Jen and Billy were already beside him, lounging in a cushy pile of baggage. You'll never get a ride like this again. No wonder the Tarahumara thought Caballo was a ghost. There was no telling what this guy would do or where he'd turn up. Forget it, I said. I've seen this road. I'm getting in the crash-ready position inside between the two fattest guys I can find. Barefoot Ted grabbed the rungs behind Scott. Hey, I said, why don't you ride inside with me? No thanks. I'm going roof surfing. Look, I said, spelling it out, maybe you should give Caballo a little space. Push him too far, and this race is over. Nah, we're cool, Ted said. He just needs to get to know me. Yeah, that's exactly what he needs. The driver was settling behind the wheel, so Eric and I hustled aboard and squeezed into the back row. The bus misfired, stalled, then grumbled back to life. Soon we were winding through the forest, heading toward the old mining town of La Bufa, and from there to the end of the road in the canyon-bottom village of Batopilas. After that, we'd strike out on foot. I'm waiting to hear a scream and see barefoot Ted getting heaved off the roof, Eric said. You ain't kidding. Caballo's last words before storming off were still ringing in my ears. We'll see, amigo. Caballo, as it turned out, had decided that before Barefoot Ted got us all in trouble, he was going to teach him a lesson. Unfortunately, it was a lesson that would have all of us running for our lives. Chapter 25 Barefoot Ted was right, of course. Lost in all the fireworks between Ted and Caballo was an important point. Running shoes may be the most destructive force to ever hit the human foot. Barefoot Ted, in his own weird way, was becoming the Neil Armstrong of 21st century distance running, an ace test pilot whose small steps could have tremendous benefit for the rest of mankind. If that seems like excessive stature to load on Barefoot Ted's shoulders, consider these words by Dr. Daniel Lieberman, a professor of biological anthropology at Harvard University. A lot of foot and knee injuries that are currently plaguing us are actually caused by people running with shoes that actually make our feet weak, cause us to overpronate, give us knee problems. Until 1972, when the modern athletic shoe was invented by Nike, people ran in very thin-soled shoes, had strong feet, and had much lower incidence of knee injuries. And the cost of those injuries? Fatal disease in epidemic proportions. Humans really are obligatorily required to do aerobic exercise in order to stay healthy, and I think that has deep roots in our evolutionary history, Dr. Lieberman said. If there's any magic bullet to make human beings healthy, it's to run. Magic bullet? The last time a scientist with Dr. Lieberman's credentials used that term, he'd just created penicillin. Dr. Lieberman knew it and meant it. If running shoes never existed, he was saying, more people would be running. If more people ran, fewer would be dying of degenerative heart disease, sudden cardiac arrest, hypertension, blocked arteries, diabetes, and most other deadly ailments of the Western world. That's a staggering amount of guilt to lay at Nike's feet. 
But the most remarkable part? Nike already knew it. In April 2001, two Nike reps were watching the Stanford University track team practice. Part of a Nike rep's job is getting feedback from its sponsored runners about which shoes they prefer, but that was proving difficult at the moment because the Stanford runners all seemed to prefer nothing. Vin, what's up with the barefooting? They called Stanford head coach Vin Lanana. Didn't we send you enough shoes? Coach Lanana walked over to explain. I can't prove this, he explained, but I believe when my runners train barefoot, they run faster and suffer fewer injuries. Faster and fewer injuries? Coming from anyone else, the Nike guys would have politely ahad and ignored it, but this was one coach whose ideas they took seriously. Like Joe Veal, Lanana was rarely mentioned without the word visionary or innovator popping up. In just 10 years at Stanford, Lanana's track and cross-country teams had won five NCAA team championships and 22 individual titles, and Lanana himself had been named NCAA cross-country coach of the year. Lanana had already sent three runners to the Olympics and was busy grooming more with his Nike-sponsored farm team, a post-college club for the best of the very best. Needless to say, the Nike reps were a little chagrined to hear that Lenana felt the best shoes Nike had to offer were worse than no shoes at all. We've shielded our feet from their natural position by providing more and more support, Lenana insisted. That's why he made sure his runners always did part of their workouts in bare feet on the track's infield. I know as a shoe company it's not the greatest thing to have a sponsored team not use your product, but people went thousands of years without shoes. I think you try to do all these corrective things with shoes and you overcompensate. You fix things that don't need fixing. If you strengthen the foot by going barefoot, I think you reduce the risk of Achilles and knee and plantar fascia problems. Risk isn't quite the right term. It's more like dead certainty. Every year, anywhere from 65 to 80 percent of all runners suffer an injury. That's nearly every runner every single year. No matter who you are, no matter how much you run, your odds of getting hurt are the same. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, fast or slow, pudgy or ripped as a racehorse, your feet are still in the danger zone. Maybe you'll beat the odds if you stretch like a swami? Nope. In a 1993 study of Dutch athletes, published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine, one group of runners was taught how to warm up and stretch, while a second group received no injury prevention coaching. Their injury rates? Identical. Stretching came out even worse in a follow-up study performed the following year at the University of Hawaii. It found that runners who stretched were 33% more likely to get hurt. Lucky for us, though, we live in a golden age of technology. Running shoe companies have had a quarter century to perfect their designs, so logically, the injury rate must be in freefall by now. After all, Adidas has come up with a $250 shoe with a microprocessor in the sole that instantly adjusts cushioning for every stride. ASICS spent $3 million and eight years, three more than it took the Manhattan Project to create the first atomic bomb, to invent the awe-inspiring Kinsei, a shoe that boasts multi-angled four-foot gel pods, a mid-foot thrust enhancer, 
and an infinitely adaptable heel component that isolates and absorbs impact to reduce pronation and aid in forward propulsion. That's big bucks for sneaks you'll have to toss in the garbage in 90 days, but at least you'll never limp again. Right? Sorry. Since the first real studies were done in the late 70s, Achilles' complaints have actually increased by about 10%, while plantar fasciitis has remained the same, says Dr. Stephen Privet, a running injury specialist and past president of the American Academy of Podiatric Sports Medicine. The technological advancements over the past 30 years have been amazing, adds Dr. Irene Davis, the director of the Running Injury Clinic at the University of Delaware. We've seen tremendous innovations in motion control and cushioning, and yet the remedies don't seem to defeat the ailments. In fact, there's no evidence that running shoes are any help at all in injury prevention. In a 2008 research paper for the British Journal of Sports Medicine, Dr. Craig Richards, a researcher at the University of Newcastle in Australia, revealed that there are no evidence-based studies, not one, that demonstrate that running shoes make you less prone to injury. It was an astonishing revelation that had been hidden in plain sight for 35 years. Dr. Richards was so stunned that a $20 billion industry seemed to be based on nothing but empty promises and wishful thinking that he even issued a challenge. Is any running shoe company prepared to claim that wearing their distance running shoes will decrease your risk of suffering musculoskeletal running injuries? Is any shoe manufacturer prepared to claim that wearing their running shoes will improve your distance running performance? If you are prepared to make these claims, where is your peer-reviewed data to back it up? Dr. Richards waited and even tried contacting the major shoe companies for their data. In response, he got silence. So if running shoes don't make you go faster and don't stop you from getting hurt, then what exactly are you paying for? What are the benefits of all those microchips, thrust enhancers, air cushions, torsion devices, and roll bars? Well, if you have a pair of kinsays in your closet, brace yourself for some bad news. And like all bad news, it comes in threes. Painful truth number one. The best shoes are the worst. Runners wearing top-of-the-line shoes are 123% more likely to get injured than runners in cheap shoes, according to a study led by Bernard Marty, M.D., a preventative medicine specialist at Switzerland's University of Bern. Dr. Marty's research team analyzed 4,358 runners in the Bern Grand Prix, a 9.6-mile road race. All the runners filled out an extensive questionnaire that detailed their training habits and footwear for the previous year. As it turned out, 45% had been hurt during that time. But what surprised Dr. Marti, as he pointed out in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 1989, was the fact that the most common variable among the casualties wasn't training surface, running speed, weekly mileage, or competitive training motivation. It wasn't even body weight or a history of previous injury. It was the price of the shoe. Runners in shoes that cost more than $95 were more than twice as likely to get hurt as runners in shoes that cost less than $40. Follow-up studies found similar results, like the 1991 report in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise, 
that found that wearers of expensive running shoes that are promoted as having additional features that protect, in other words, more cushioning, pronation correction, are injured significantly more frequently than runners wearing inexpensive shoes, costing less than $40. What a cruel joke. For double the price, you get double the pain. Sharp-eyed as ever, Coach Vin Lanana had already spotted the same phenomenon himself back in the early 80s. I once ordered high-end shoes for the team, and within two weeks, we had more plantar fasciitis and Achilles problems than I'd ever seen. So I sent them back and told them, Send me my cheap shoes, Lenana says. Ever since then, I've always ordered the low-end shoes. It's not because I'm cheap. It's because I'm in the business of making athletes run fast and stay healthy. Painful truth number two. Feet like a good beating. As far back as 1988, Dr. Barry Bates, the head of the University of Oregon's Biomechanics Sports Medicine Laboratory, gathered data that suggested that beat-up running shoes are safer than newer ones. In the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, Dr. Bates and his colleagues reported that as shoes wore down and their cushioning thinned, runners gained more foot control. So how do foot control and a flapping old sole add up to injury-free legs? Because of one magic ingredient, fear. Contrary to what pillowy-sounding names like the Adidas Mega Bounce would have you believe, all that cushioning does nothing to reduce impact. Logically, that should be obvious. The impact on your legs from running can be up to 12 times your body weight so it's preposterous to believe a half-inch of rubber is going to make a bit of difference against, in my case, 2,760 pounds of earthbound beef. You can cover an egg with an oven mitt before wrapping it with a hammer, but that egg ain't coming out alive. When E.C. Frederick, then the director of Nike Sports Research Lab, arrived at the 1986 meeting of the American Society of Biomechanics, he was packing a bombshell. When subjects were tested with soft versus hard shoes, he said, no difference in impact force was found. No difference. And curiously, he added, the second propulsive peak in the vertical ground reaction force was actually higher with soft shoes. The puzzling conclusion, the more cushioned the shoe, the less protection it provides. Researchers at the University of Oregon's Biomechanics Sports Medicine Laboratory were verifying the same finding. As running shoes got worn down and their cushioning hardened, the Oregon researchers revealed in a 1988 study for the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, runners' feet stabilized and became less wobbly. It would take about 10 years before scientists came up with an explanation for why the old shoes that sports companies were telling you to throw away were better than the new ones they were urging you to buy. At McGill University in Montreal, Stephen Robbins, M.D., and Edward Wachhead, Ph.D., performed a series of tests on gymnasts. They found that the thicker the landing mat, the harder the gymnasts stuck their landings. Instinctively, the gymnasts were searching for stability. When they sensed a soft surface underfoot, they slapped down hard to ensure balance. Runners do the same thing, Robinson Wachhead found. 
just the way your arms automatically fly up when you slip on ice, your legs and feet instinctively come down hard when they sense something squishy underfoot. When you run in cushioned shoes, your feet are pushing through the soles in search of a hard, stable platform. We conclude that balance and vertical impact are closely related, the McGill docs wrote. According to our findings, currently available sports shoes are too soft and thick and should be redesigned if they are to protect humans performing sports. Until reading this study, I'd been mystified by an experience I'd had at the running injury clinic. I'd run back and forth over a force plate while alternating between bare feet, a super thin shoe, and the well-cushioned Nike Pegasus. Whenever I changed shoes, the impact levels changed as well, but not the way I'd expected. My impact forces were lightest in bare feet and heaviest in the pegs. My running form also varied. When I changed footwear, I instinctively changed my footfall. You're much more of a heel striker in the Pegasus, Dr. Irene Davis concluded. David Smintek decided to test the impact theory with a unique experiment of his own. As both a runner and a physical therapist specializing in acute rehabilitation, Smintek was wary when the people telling him he had to buy new shoes were the same people who sold them. He'd been warned forever by Runner's World and his local running store that he had to replace his shoes every 300 to 500 miles. But how was it that Arthur Newton, one of the greatest ultra runners of all time, saw no reason to replace his thin rubber sneakers until he'd put at least 4,000 miles on them? Newton not only won the 55-mile Comrades race five times in the 1930s, but his legs were still springy enough to break the record for the 100-mile Bath to London run at age 51. So Smintek decided to see if he could out-Newton Newton. When my shoes wear down on one side, he wondered, what if I just wear them on the wrong feet? Thus began the crazy foot experiment. When his shoes got thin on the outside edge, Dave swapped the right for the left and kept running. You have to understand the man, says Ken Learman, one of Dave's fellow therapists. Dave is not the average individual. He's curious, smart, the kind of guy you can't BS real easy. He'll say, hey, if it's supposed to be this way, let's see if it really is. For the next 10 years, David ran five miles a day, every day. Once he realized he could run comfortably in wrong-footed shoes, he started questioning why he needed running shoes in the first place. If he wasn't using them the way they were designed, Dave reasoned, Maybe the design wasn't such a big deal after all. From then on, he only bought cheap dime store sneaks. Here he is, running more than most people, with the wrong shoe on the wrong foot and not having any problems, Ken Learman says. That experiment taught us all something. Taught us that when it comes to running shoes, all that glitters isn't gold. Final Painful Truth even Alan Webb says, human beings are designed to run without shoes. Before Alan Webb became America's greatest miler, he was a flat-footed frosh with awful form. But his high school coach saw potential and began rebuilding Alan from, no exaggeration, the ground up. I had injury problems early on, and it became apparent that my biomechanics could cause injury, Webb told me. 
so we did foot strengthening drills and special walks in bare feet. Bit by bit, Webb watched his feet transform before his eyes. I was a size 12 and flat-footed, and now I'm a 9 or 10. As the muscles in my feet got stronger, my arch got higher. Because of the barefoot drills, Webb also cut down on his injuries, allowing him to handle the kind of heavy training that would lead to his U.S. record for the mile and the fastest 1,500-meter time in the world for the year 2007. Barefoot running has been one of my training philosophies for years, said Gerard Hartman, Ph.D., the Irish physical therapist who serves as the great and powerful Oz for the world's finest distance runners. Paula Radcliffe never runs a marathon without seeing Dr. Hartman first. And titans like Haile Gebrselassie and Khalid Kanuchi have trusted their feet to his hands. For decades, Dr. Hartman has been watching the explosion of orthotics and ever more structured running shoes with dismay. The deconditioned musculature of the foot is the greatest issue leading to injury, and we've allowed our feet to become badly deconditioned over the past 25 years, Dr. Hartman said. Pronation has become this very bad word, but it's just the natural movement of the foot. The foot is supposed to pronate. To see pronation in action, kick off your shoes and run down the driveway. On a hard surface, your feet will briefly unlearn the habits they picked up in shoes and automatically shift to self-defense mode. You'll find yourself landing on the outside edge of your foot, then gently rolling from little toe over to big until your foot is flat. That's pronation, just a mild, shock-absorbing twist that allows your arch to compress. But back in the 70s, the most respected voice in running began expressing some doubts about all that foot twisting. Dr. George Sheehan was a cardiologist whose essays on the beauty of running had made him the philosopher king of the marathon set. And he came up with the notion that excessive pronation might be the cause of runner's knee. He was both right and very, very wrong. You have to land on your heel to overpronate and you can only land on your heel if it's cushioned. Nevertheless, the shoe companies were quick to respond to Dr. Sheehan's call to arms and came up with a nuclear response. They created monstrously wedged and super-engineered shoes that wiped out virtually all pronation. But once you block a natural movement, Dr. Hartman said, you adversely affect the others. We've done studies and only 2 to 3% of the population has real biomechanical problems. So who is getting all these orthotics? Every time we put someone in a corrective device, we're creating new problems by treating ones that don't exist. In a startling admission in 2008, Runner's World confessed that for years it had accidentally misled its readers by recommending corrective shoes for runners with plantar fasciitis. But recent research has shown stability shoes are unlikely to relieve plantar fasciitis and may even exacerbate the symptoms. Emphasis mine. Just look at the architecture, Dr. Hartman explained. Blueprint your feet and you'll find a marvel that engineers have been trying to match for centuries. Your foot's centerpiece is the arch, the greatest weight-bearing design ever created. The beauty of any arch is the way it gets stronger under stress. The harder you push down, the tighter its parts mesh. 
No stonemason worth his trowel would ever stick a support under an arch. Push up from underneath, and you weaken the whole structure. Buttressing the foot's arch from all sides is a high tensile web of 26 bones, 33 joints, 12 rubbery tendons, and 18 muscles, all stretching and flexing like an earthquake-resistant suspension bridge. Putting your feet in shoes is similar to putting them in a plaster cast, Dr. Hartman said. If I put your leg in plaster, we'll find 40 to 60 percent atrophy of the musculature within six weeks. Something similar happens to your feet when they're encased in shoes. When shoes are doing the work, tendons stiffen and muscles shrivel. Feet live for a fight and thrive under pressure. Let them laze around, as Alan Webb discovered, and they'll collapse. Work them out, and they'll arc up like a rainbow. I've worked with over a hundred of the best Kenyan runners, and one thing they have in common is marvelous elasticity in their feet, Dr. Hartman continued. That comes from never running in shoes until you're 17. To this day, Dr. Hartman believes that the best injury prevention advice he's ever heard came from a coach who advocated running barefoot on dewy grass three times a week. He's not the only medical professional preaching the barefoot doctrine. According to Dr. Paul W. Brand, chief of rehab at the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital in Carville, Louisiana, and a professor of surgery at Louisiana State University Medical School, we could wipe out every common foot ailment within a generation by kicking off our shoes. As far back as 1976, Dr. Brand was pointing out that nearly every case in his waiting room, corns, bunions, hammer toes, flat feet, fallen arches, was nearly non-existent in countries where most people go barefoot. The barefoot walker receives a continuous stream of information about the ground and about his own relationship to it. Dr. Brandt has said, while a shod foot sleeps inside an unchanging environment. Drumbeats for the barefoot uprising were growing. But instead of doctors leading the charge for a muscular foot, it was turning into a class war pitting podiatrists against their own patients. Barefoot advocates like Drs. Brand and Hartman were still rare, while traditional podiatric thinking still saw human feet as nature's mistake a work in progress that could always be improved by little scalpel sculpting and orthotic reshaping. That born-broken mentality found its perfect expression in the Runner's Repair Manual. Written by Dr. Murray Weisenfeld, a leading sports podiatrist, it's one of the top-selling foot care books of all time and begins with this dire pronouncement. Man's foot was not originally designed for walking much less running long distances. So what, according to the manual, was our foot designed for? Well, at first, swimming. The modern foot evolved out of the fin of some primordial fish, and these fins pointed backward. After that, climbing. The grasping foot permitted the creature to squat on branches without falling out. And then? And then, According to the podiatric account of evolution, we got stuck. While the rest of our bodies adapted beautifully to solid earth, somehow the only part of our body that actually touched the earth got left behind. We developed brains and hands deft enough to perform intravascular surgery, yet our feet never made it past the Paleolithic era. Man's foot 
is not yet completely adapted to the ground, the manual laments. Only a portion of the population has been endowed with well-ground-adapted feet. So who are these lucky few with well-evolved feet? Come to think of it, nobody. Nature has not yet published her plan for the perfect modern runner's foot, Dr. Weisenfeld writes. Until the perfect foot comes along, my experience has shown me that we've all got an excellent chance at having some kind of injury. Nature may not have published her blueprint, but that didn't stop some podiatrists from trying to come up with one of their own. And it was exactly that kind of overconfidence, the belief that four years of podiatric training could trump two million years of natural selection, that led to a catastrophic rash of operations in the 70s. Not too many years ago, runner's knee was treated by surgery, Dr. Weisenfeld acknowledges. That didn't work too well, since you need that cushioning when you run. Once the patients came out from under the knife, they discovered that their nagging ache had turned into a life-changing mutilation. Without cartilage in their knees, they'd never be able to run without pain again. Despite the podiatric profession's checkered history of attempting to one-up nature, the runner's repair manual never recommends strengthening feet. Instead, the treatment of choice is always tape, orthotics, or surgery. It even took Dr. Irene Davis, whose credentials and open-mindedness are hard to beat, until 2007 to take barefooting seriously, and only then because one of her patients flat-out defied her. He was so frustrated by his chronic plantar fasciitis, he wanted to try blasting it away by running in thin-soled, slipper-like shoes. Dr. Davis told him he was nuts. He did it anyway. To her surprise, as Biomechanics magazine would later report, the plantar fasciitis symptoms abated, and the patient was able to run short distances in the shoes. This is how we often learn things, when patients don't listen to us, Dr. Davis graciously responded. I think perhaps the widespread plantar fasciitis in this country is partly due to the fact that we really don't allow the muscles in our feet to do what they are designed to do. She was so impressed by her rebellious patient's recovery that she even began adding barefoot walks to her own workouts. Nike doesn't earn $17 billion a year by letting the barefoot Teds of the world set the trends. Soon after the two Nike reps returned from Stanford with news that the barefoot uprising had even spread to elite college track, Nike set to work to see if it could make a buck from the problem it had created. Blaming the running injury epidemic on big, bad Nike seems too easy. But that's okay, because it's largely their fault. The company was founded by Phil Knight, a University of Oregon runner who could sell anything, and Bill Bowerman, the University of Oregon coach who thought he knew everything. Before these two men got together, the modern running shoe didn't exist. Neither did most modern running injuries. For a guy who told so many people how to run, Bowerman didn't do much of it himself. He only started to jog a little at age 50, after spending time in New Zealand with Arthur Lydiard, the father of fitness running and the most influential distance running coach of all time. Lydiard had begun the Auckland Joggers Club back in the late 50s to help rehab heart attack victims. It was wildly controversial at the time. Physicians were certain that Lydiard was mobilizing a mass suicide. 
But once the formerly ill men realized how great they felt after a few weeks of running, they began inviting their wives, kids, and parents to come along for the two-hour trail rambles. By the time Bill Bowerman paid his first visit in 1962, Lydiard's Sunday morning group run was the biggest party in Auckland. Bowerman tried to join them, but was in such lousy shape that he had to be helped along by a 73-year-old man who'd survived three coronaries. God, the only thing that kept me alive was the hope that I would die, Bowerman said afterward. But he came home a convert, and soon penned a best-selling book whose one-word title introduced a new word and obsession to the American public, jogging. Between writing and coaching, Bowerman was busy ruining his nervous system and his wife's waffle iron by tinkering in the basement with molten rubber to invent a new kind of footwear. His experiments left Bowerman with a debilitating nerve condition, but also the most cushioned running shoe ever created. In a stroke of dark irony, Bowerman named it the Cortez, after the conquistador who plundered the new world for gold and unleashed a horrific smallpox epidemic. Bowerman's deftest move was advocating a new style of running that was only possible in his new style of shoe. The Cortez allowed people to run in a way no human safely could before, by landing on their bony heels. Before the invention of a cushioned shoe, runners through the ages had identical form. Jesse Owens, Roger Bannister, Frank Shorter, and even Emil Zatopek all ran with back straight, knees bent, feet scratching back under their hips. They had no choice. The only shock absorption came from the compression of their legs and their thick pad of midfoot fat. Fred Wilt verified as much in 1959 in his classic track text, How They Train, which detailed the techniques of more than 80 of the world's top runners. The forward foot moves toward the track in a downward, backward stroking motion, not punching or pounding, and the outer edge of the ball of the foot makes first contact with the track. Wilt writes, running progression results from these forces pushing behind the center of gravity of the body. In fact, when the biomedical designer Van Phillips created a state-of-the-art prosthetic for amputee runners in 1984, he didn't even bother equipping it with a heel. As a runner who lost his left leg below the knee in a water skiing accident, Phillips understood that the heel was needed only for standing, not motion. Phillips's C-shaped cheetah foot mimics the performance of an organic leg so effectively it allowed the South African double amputee Oscar Pistorius to compete with the world's greatest sprinters. But Bowerman had an idea. Maybe you could grab a little extra distance if you stepped ahead of your center of gravity. Stick a chunk of rubber under the heel, he mused, and you could straighten your leg, land on your heel, and lengthen your stride. In jogging, he compared the styles. With the time-tested flat foot strike, he acknowledged, the wide surface area pillows the foot strike and is easy on the rest of the body. Nevertheless, he still believed a heel-to-toe stride would be the least tiring over long distances, if you've got the shoe for it. Bowerman's marketing was brilliant. The same man created a market for a product and then created the product itself, as one Oregon financial columnist observed. It's genius, the kind of stuff they study in business schools. Bowerman's partner, the runner-turned-entrepreneur Phil Knight, set up a manufacturing deal in Japan and was soon selling shoes faster than they could come off the assembly line. 
with the Cortez's cushioning, we were in a monopoly position probably into the Olympic year 1972, Knight would gloat. By the time other companies geared up to copy the new shoe, the swoosh was a world power. Delighted with the reaction to his amateur designs, Bowerman let his creativity take off. He contemplated a waterproof shoe made of fish skin, but let that one die on the drawing board. He did come out with the LD-1000 trainer, a shoe with a sole so wide it was like running on pie plates. Bowerman figured it would kill pronation in its tracks, overlooking the fact that unless the runner's foot was perfectly straight, the flared heel would wrench his leg. Instead of stabilizing, it accelerated pronation and hurt both feet and ankles, former Oregon runner Kenny Moore reported in his biography of Bowerman. The shoe that was supposed to give you a perfect stride, in other words, only worked if you already had one. When Bowerman realized he was causing injuries instead of preventing them, he had to backtrack and narrow the heel in later versions. Back in New Zealand, meanwhile, an appalled Arthur Lydiard was watching the flashy exports flooding out of Oregon and wondering what in the world his friend was up to. Compared with Bowerman, Lydiard was by far the superior track mind. He'd coached many more Olympic champions and world record holders, and he'd created a training program that remains the gold standard. Lydiard liked Bill Bowerman and respected him as a coach, but good God, what was this junk he was selling? Lydiard knew all this pronation stuff was just marketing gibberish. If you told the average person of any age to take off his or her shoes and run down the hallway, you would almost always discover the foot action contains no hint of pronation or supination, Lydiard complained. Those sideways flexings of the ankles begin only when people lace themselves into these running shoes, because the construction of many of the shoes immediately alters the natural movement of the feet. We ran in canvas shoes, Lydiard went on. We didn't get plantar fascia. We didn't pronate or supinate. We might have lost a bit of skin from the rough canvas when we were running marathons, but generally speaking, we didn't have foot problems. Paying several hundred dollars for the latest in high-tech running shoes is no guarantee you'll avoid any of these injuries and can even guarantee that you will suffer from them in one form or another. Eventually, even Bowerman was stricken by doubt. As Nike steamrolled along, churning out a bewildering variety of shoes and changing models every year for no reason besides having something else to sell, Bowerman felt his original mission of making an honest shoe had been eroded by a new ideology, which he summed up in two words, make money. Nike, he griped in a letter to a colleague, was distributing a lot of crap. Even to one of Nike's founding partners, it seemed, the words of the social critic Eric Hoffer were ringing true. Every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and turns into a racket. Bowerman had died by the time the Barefoot Uprising was taking hold in 2002, so Nike went back to Bowerman's old mentor to see if this shoeless stuff really had merit. Of course, Arthur Lydiard reportedly snorted. You support an area, it gets weaker. Use it extensively, it gets stronger. Run barefoot and you don't have all those troubles. Shoes that let your foot function like your barefoot, they're the shoes for me, Lydiard concluded. Nike followed up that blast with its own hard data. Jeff Pichotta, the senior researcher at Nike Sports Research Lab, 
assembled 20 runners on a grassy field and filmed them running barefoot. When he zoomed in, he was startled by what he found. Instead of each foot clomping down as it would in a shoe, it behaved like an animal with a mind of its own, stretching, grasping, seeking the ground with splayed toes, gliding in for a landing like a lake-bound swan. It's beautiful to watch, a still spellbound Bishada later told me. That made us start thinking that when you put a shoe on, it starts to take over some of the control. He immediately deployed his team to gather film of every existing barefoot culture they could find. We found pockets of people all over the globe who are still running barefoot. And what you find is that during propulsion and landing, they have far more range of motion in the foot and engage more of the toe. Their feet flex, spread, splay, and grip the surface, meaning you have less pronation and more distribution of pressure. Faced with the almost inescapable conclusion that it had been selling lemons, Nike shifted into make lemonade mode. Jeff Bishada became head of a top-secret and seemingly impossible project, finding a way to make a buck off a naked foot. It took two years of work before Pichotta was ready to unveil his masterpiece. It was presented to the world in TV ads that showed so many barefoot athletes, Kenyan marathoners padding along a dirt trail, swimmers curling their toes around a starting block, gymnasts and Brazilian capoeira dancers, and rock climbers and wrestlers and karate masters and beach soccer players, that after a while, it was hard to remember who does wear shoes or why. Flashing over the images were motivational messages. Your feet are your foundation. Wake them up. Make them strong. Connect with the ground. Natural technology allows natural motion. Power to your feet. Across the sole of a bare foot is scrawled, Performance starts here. Then comes the grand finale. As tiptoe through the tulips crescendos in the background, we cut back to those Kenyans whose bare feet are now sporting some kind of thin little shoe. It's the new Nike Free, a swooshed slipper even thinner than the old Cortez. And its slogan? Run barefoot. Chapter 26 Baby, this town rips the bones from your back. It's a death trap. It's a suicide rap. Bruce Springsteen born to run. Caballo Blanco's face was pink with pride, so I tried to think of something nice to say. We just arrived in Batopilas, an ancient mining town tucked 8,000 feet below the lip of the canyon. It was founded 400 years ago when Spanish explorers discovered silver ore in the Stony River, and it hasn't changed much since then. It's still a tiny strip of houses hugging the riverbank a place where burros are as common as cars, and the first telephone was installed when the rest of the world was programming iPods. Getting down there took a cast-iron stomach and supreme faith in your fellow man, the man in question being the one driving the bus. The only way into Batapilas is a dirt road that corkscrews along the sheer face of a cliff, dropping 7,000 feet in less than 10 miles. As the bus strained around hairpin turns, we hung on tight and looked far below at the wrecks of cars whose drivers had miscalculated by a few inches. Two years later, Caballo would make his own contribution to the steel cemetery 
when the pickup truck he was driving caught the lip of the cliff and tumbled over. Caballo managed to dive out just in time and watched as the truck exploded far below. Later, chunks of the scorched carcass were scavenged as good luck charms. After the bus pulled over on the edge of town, we climbed down stiffly, our faces as war-painted with dust and sweat salt as Caballo's had been the first time I met him. There she is, Caballo hollered. That's my place. We looked around, but the only thing in sight was the ancient ruin of an old mission across the river. Its roof was gone, and its red stone walls were collapsing into the ruddy canyon they'd been carved from, looking like a sand castle dissolving back into sand. It was perfect. Caballo had found the ideal home for a living ghost. I could only imagine how freaky it must be to pass here at night and see his monstrous shadow dancing around behind his campfire as he wandered the ruins like Quasimodo. Wow, that's really something, uh, else, I said. No, man, he said. Over here. He pointed behind us toward a faint goat trail disappearing into the cactus. Caballo began to climb, and we fell in behind him, grabbing at brush for balance as we slipped and scrabbled up the stony path. Damn, Caballo, Luis said. This is the only driveway in the world that needs trail markers and an aid station at mile two. After a hundred yards or so, we came through a thicket of wild lime trees and found a small clay-walled hut. Caballo had built it by hauling up rocks from the river, making the round trip over that treacherous path hundreds of times with river-slick stones in his hands. As a home, it suited Caballo even better than the ruined mission. Here in his handmade fortress of solitude, he could see everything in the river valley and remain unseen. We wandered inside and saw Caballo had a small camp bed, a pile of trashed sports sandals, and three or four books about Crazy Horse and other Native Americans on a shelf next to a kerosene lamp. That was it. No electricity, no running water, no toilet. Out back, Caballo had cut away the cactus and smoothed a little place to kick back after a run, smoke something relaxing, and gaze off at the prehistoric wilderness. Whatever Barefoot Ted's heavy Heidegger word was, no one was ever more an expression of their place than Caballo was of his hut. Caballo was anxious to get us fed and off his hands so he could catch up on sleep. The next few days were going to take everything we had, and none of us had gotten much rest since El Paso. He led us back down his hidden driveway and up the road to a tiny shop operating from the front window of a house. You poked your head in, and if shopkeeper Mario had what you wanted, you got it. Upstairs, Mario rented us a few small rooms with a cold-water shower at the end of the hall. Caballo wanted us to dump our bags and head off immediately for food, but Barefoot Ted insisted on stripping down and padding off to the shower to sluice away the road grime. He came out screaming. Jesus! The shower's got loose wires! I just got the shit shocked out of me! Eric looked at me. You think Caballo did it? Justifiable homicide, I said. No jury would convict. The barefoot Ted Caballo Blanco stormfront hadn't improved a bit since we'd left Creel. During one rest stop, Caballo climbed down from the roof and squeezed his way into the back of the bus to escape. That guy doesn't know what silence is, Caballo fumed. He's from L.A., man. He thinks you've got to fill every space with noise. 
After we'd gotten settled at Mario's, Caballo brought us to another of his mamas. We didn't even have to order. As soon as we arrived, Doña Mila began pulling out whatever she had in the fridge. Soon, platters were being handed around of guacamole, frijoles, sliced cactus and tomatoes doused in tangy vinegar, Spanish rice, and a fragrant beef stew thickened with chicken liver. Pack it in, Caballo had said. You're going to need it tomorrow. He was taking us on a little warm-up hike, Caballo said, just a jaunt up a nearby mountain to give us a taste of the terrain we'd be tackling on the trek to the race course. He kept saying it was no big deal, but then he'd warn us we'd better pound down the food and get right to bed. I became even more apprehensive after a white-haired old American ambled in and joined us. "'How's the giddy-up, hoss?' he greeted Caballo. His name was Bob Francis. He had first wandered down to Batopilas in the 60s, and part of him had never left. Even though he had kids and grandkids back in San Diego, Bob still spent most of the year wandering the canyons around Batopilas, sometimes guiding trekkers, sometimes just visiting Patricio Luna, a Tarahumara friend who was Manuel Luna's uncle. They met thirty years before, when Bob got lost in the canyons. Patricio found him, fed him, and brought him back to his family's cave for the night. Because of his long friendship with Patricio, Bob is one of the only Americans to have ever attended a Tarahumara Tesquinada, the marathon drinking party that precedes and occasionally prevents the ball races. Even Caballo hasn't reached that level of trust with the Tarahumara, and after listening to Bob's stories, he wasn't sure he wanted to. All of a sudden, Tarahumara I've been friends with for years, guys I knew as shy, gentle amigos, are in my face, butting against me with their chests, spitting insults at me, ready to fight, Bob said. Meanwhile, their wives are in the bushes with other men, and their grown-up daughters are wrestling naked. They keep the kids away from these deals. You can imagine why. Anything goes at a Tesquinada, Bob explained, because everything is blamed on the peyote, moonshine tequila, and Tesquino, the potent corn beer. As wild as these parties get, they actually serve a noble and sober purpose. They act as a pressure valve to vent explosive emotions. Just like the rest of us, the Tarahumara have secret desires and grievances, but in a society where everyone relies on one another and there are no police to get between them, there has to be a way to satisfy lusts and grudges. What better than a booze fest? Everyone gets ripped, goes wild, and then, chastened by bruises and hangovers, they dust themselves off and get on with their lives. I could have been married or murdered twenty times before the night was over, Bob said. But I was smart enough to put down the gourd and get myself out of there before the real shenanigans started. If one outsider knew the Barrancas as well as Caballo, it was Bob, which was why, even though he was liquored up and in a bit of a ranting mood, I paid careful attention when he got into it with Ted. Those fucking things are going to be dead tomorrow, Bob said, pointing at the five fingers on Ted's feet. I'm not going to wear them, Ted said. Now you're talking sense, Bob said. I'm going barefoot, Ted said. Bob turned to Caballo. He messing with us, Haas? Caballo just smiled. Early the next morning, Caballo came for us as dawn was breaking over the canyon. That's where we're headed tomorrow, Caballo said, 
pointing through the window of my room toward a mountain rearing in the distance. Between us and the mountain was a sea of rolling foothills so thickly overgrown that it was hard to see how a trail could punch through. We'll run one of those little guys this morning. How much water do we need? Scott asked. I only carry this, Caballo said, waving a sixteen-ounce plastic bottle. There's a freshwater spring up top to refill. Food? Nah, Caballo shrugged, as he and Scott left to check on the others. We'll be back by lunch. I'm bringing the big boy, Eric said to me, gurgling spring water into the bladder on his ninety-six-ounce hydration backpack. I think you should, too. Really? Caballo says we're only going about ten miles. Can't hurt to carry the max when you go off-road, Eric said. Even if you don't need it, it's training for when you do. And you never know. Something happens, you could be out there longer than you think. I put down my handheld bottle and reached for my hydration pack. Bring iodine pills in case you need to purify water. And shove in some gels, too, Eric added. On race day, you're going to need 200 calories an hour. The trick is learning how to take in a little at a time so you've got a steady drip of fuel without overwhelming your stomach. This'll be good practice. 